So last week, if you were with us for Easter Sunday, it was really special. Uh, the We t- started talking about Jesus showing us a picture of God that is all parts loving, no parts punishing. But we also talked about how American culture in general, and ironically, American religion, uh, kind of trains us to believe that that couldn't be true. Uh, that it can't be that at the center of all things is just love. It can't be that true grace can exist, right? Like grace, this this is like this buzzword in, in religious settings or, or often used al- elsewhere in American society. Grace is a free gift given, no compensation required. But uh, even though American religion claims to be about that, claims to be about grace, there's no there's no uh, compensation required for this free gift we're giving you. It often kind of feels like there is. And I loved the end of our Easter service uh, last week the most because we asked you all for feedback and for questions of like, why does it feel hard to believe in this? Why does it feel hard to believe that at the center of all things could be an all loving, all grace God? And we got such good questions. So I'm just going to kind of um, uh, punt to some of the themes that you all uh, brought to us last week. Uh, one is like, what's the catch? Is this isn't this too good to be true? Um, what is the what's the fine print? You know, okay, yeah, you're you're selling me the good news, but what's underneath that? Uh, another question is: If we believe this, is this just like a fluffy god of our own making? Is that you know we just picking and choosing ideas to make ourselves feel good? Quite honestly, is this just like a white liberal version of God, where individuals can feel good about themselves, but it really can't handle the messiness and the injustice of real life? Uh, for those of us who grew up in uh, more highly religious settings, the question was: How does this square with the Bible? How, what about this or that Bible verse? Or how do we reconcile the portrayal of God in the Old Testament with the portrayal of God in the New Testament? Yes, God is part loving, of course, but doesn't he also have to be part punishing too? Isn't that what the Bible teaches was a lot of the drive of some other, isn't, isn't that what the Bible teaches? Isn't, don't we have to believe in that if we're going to believe in God? So many of us have been taught to like, if if we feel some like, some some uh distance from that that picture of god we don't want to be close to that we've been taught that we have to think lesser of ourselves uh we're like we we should we should be going to that god and we're just i don't know we have to berate ourselves because we're not faithful enough even though if a person were kind to us one moment but then vindictive to us another moment we would we would never think of that person as loving we would try to keep our distance from that person It, it it is hard to believe in an all-loving God. And because of that, it feels like our only options are we have to choose not to believe, or we have to believe in something that doesn't feel totally right and keep our distance from it. What if, the question that we're asking, the series we're beginning today, what if there are satisfying responses to some of these hard questions we have? Of course, we don't mean that we can answer every question that we've ever had, respond to every doubt, remove all questions. That can't happen. But what if there are responses that won't feel like a bitter pill? What if there are things that are like good enough and satisfying enough and we don't have to feel like uh, when I have all these questions, either don't ask and, you know, have faith best I can, even though I kind of want to keep my distance 
or I just choose not to believe. What if those are not our only two options? What if we can believe in true grace? Well, Haley and Kyle and I, the pastors here, we're excited to keep this conversation going. Uh, for the next month, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna lay out like what we're gonna do and then we're gonna actually do some of it. Um, what we'll do over the over the next month is each week is going to be focused on a different hard question. One of those ones that we just mentioned that you all prompted us with because you had great questions to, to bring up last Sunday on Easter. And what we're going to do each week is we're going to get a variety of different responses to each of those questions from people smarter than us, Haley, Kyle, and Vince, from diverse backgrounds and traditions who have thought a lot about this. Our job is going to kind of be to bring three different reports each week. So you're going to hear three different responses to these hard questions each week. There's going to be some overlap, obviously, but they'll also be distinct. And that's the point for every false corner that you've been backed into of like, you either have to believe this, even though it doesn't feel right, or just, yeah, screw it all and leave it behind. For every one of those false corners, we want to show you that there's actually more than one satisfying response. There is more than one adequate way to make sense of life and of God and of love so that we can believe freely in a God that we actually trust and doesn't feel split personality or potentially scary. We won't be saying the, exactly same, the exact same things uh, when we're each of the three of us bringing reports, and that is, that is genuinely the point. We want everybody to be able to take these things and just think for yourselves, right? Like, hopefully we're presenting some things that might connect and maybe other things like, oh, that makes less sense to me, and that's all right. But that's why we're going to try to bring a few different things so that we can all come away feeling a bit more freed. All right, so uh, next week, I think, is when uh, we'll, we'll visit uh, the first question. We wanted to kind of give everybody a heads up so you know to expect, like, oh, this question's really important to me. I'll see when, that, when we're talking about that. So we're always going to let you know ahead of time. Next week, I believe the first one we're going to fa- uh, uh, lean into is how do we reconcile the differences between the Old Testament portrayal of God and the New Testament portrayal of God? That'll be next week. For this first Sunday that we're doing this, we thought we'd do a little bit more of a grab bag. So I'm going to uh, uh, ask Kyle and Haley, and uh, and I'll respond myself, uh, just as, as pastors here, what are our personal stories of examples of this, of like coming to a satisfying response to one of these really like instinctive questions of us, of like, there's got to be a catch, like I can't, or, or what about this or that Bible passage? What are the, what are the examples of our uh, personal stories and our own lives of coming to satisfying responses? So if I can go to, um, let's go to Kyle first, and then we'll go to Haley next. Uh, Kyle, do you have an example? Let, let me introduce our, our pastoral staff here, Kyle Hanawalt and Haley Larson. Kyle, uh, why don't you go first? Do you have a personal story? Absolutely. You know, I think part of what we're going to find in this series is uh, even the places we're coming from between the three of us are going to be different. Um, we don't land in the same place on every question. There are some answers that Vince comes up with that feel less satisfying to me. And there are some answers that I come up with that feels less satisfying to Haley or Vince, and that's okay. Um, and I think that part of this is helping us see, uh, particularly people like me, and this is maybe a good place to start, which is to own the lens that I bring to this. The reason why certain answers feel more or less satisfying in a lot of ways has to do with what we bring to the table when we're looking for answers, which has to do with our background and our upbringing. And somebody like me who grew up in a charismatic evangelical church, uh, the things that 
Uh, I feel the, the need to scratch those itches to feel okay in my conscience are very different than someone like Vince who did not grow up in that setting or somebody like Haley who did not grow up, uh, for example, as a man who sees the world through the lenses of things uh, as I see them. So um, for me, uh, one of the first places I remember really wrestling with something and finding a satisfying actor, uh, a satisfying answer had to do with these pieces of the Bible that felt more regressive than the world I lived in. So this had to do with things that talked about gender roles, things that talked about slavery, things that talked about a world that's, it seemed to be suggesting that God desired the world to be less just than the one I actually lived in. Um, and the first one that I wrestled with the most uh, because of the time of somebody who kind of born in the 80s and, and grew up in the churches that I grew up in were the questions around the role of uh, gender in leadership. Can women lead things? Are they allowed to speak publicly and teach men? Those were real questions that were being wrestled with uh, as I was growing up. And although I lived in a church uh, that was on the more progressive end of those, I was still in lots of conversations with people that uh, very much needed to, to had very very strong opinions on the opposite end of it. And that was a very difficult thing for me to wrestle through. Um, I went to went in a class in seminary and the professor had to say to all of the people in the room that were wrestling with it, hey, if a woman is speaking today and that feels uncomfortable with your theology, they're, I'll just say, they're speaking under my authority so you can feel okay with that. And I, was, and I just, my brain was breaking. Like the, the guys in order to hear that woman speak needed to have some authority given to her by a man. Um, and so I really begin to dive in and wrestle with these questions. Like, how do I wrestle with the passages for like, for example, in, uh, in uh, 1 Timothy 2, 11 or Ephesians 5 that talk what feels like clear language of subordination? And what really made the biggest difference for me? What really changed all the satisfying answer that I came to was when I was first introduced with the idea of the Bible speaking redemptively into the world. And what that essentially is trying to communicate to me uh, that is this, uh, this idea that we as humans want to look back in time and judge the words of the Bible based off of our current cultural assumptions and frameworks. So for example, the ancient world was a deeply patriarchal place where women just simply did not have rights uh, autonomous for men. And so when we read words that are spoken into that, that's it's a very different context than the world we live in today uh, in terms of uh, women being able to actually like, you know, own property, things that just didn't exist in the, in the ancient world. And this idea of the redemptive trend is if you're trying to see what God's heart is actually is, you cannot compare what the Bible is saying to our modern cultural frameworks. You have to compare it to the contemporary frameworks of that time and see what it is saying in that world. So for example, uh, in Ephesians, it talks about how uh, women need to submit to their husbands. And there's this real, real strong hierarchy put in there of the man being the head of the household. And there's, there's all sorts of problematic um, things with this passage, trying to wrestle with what this is trying to talk about in terms of gender roles. But perhaps the most helpful thing that I got introduced to me is that the model of Ephesians 5 is what was known in the context in that time 
And any reader that was contemporary to it would have known that as a household code. These are Greco-Roman codes of like, how do you run your household? And your household being in that world, usually your, your spouse, your slaves, your children, how do you do that? And uh, what was really helpful for me is to actually read some other contemporary household codes. Like what was the cultural norm of that time? For example, Arius Didymus wrote in one of his household codes uh, that's contemporary to the one we see in Ephesians is a man has rule over this entire household by nature for the deliberative faculty of women is inferior. In children, it does not exist. In the case of slaves, it was completely absent. So you're taking what is true of the culturally accepted norm and then you read the Bible in comparison to that, not in comparison to our world today. And so when you read Ephesians 5, which starts off with, each of you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But husbands, love your wives in the same way that a husband should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Even finishing it off with, however, let each of you love your wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So if you take that to me, that still feels deeply patriarchal, somewhat patronizing, creating it when I'm comparing it from my lens today. But if I compare it to the lens of a contemporary worldview, this is a deeply, deeply liberating and progressive and feminist portrayal of what's going on in that world. And so what that means for me today is when I think about the role of gender in our world, I need to be at least as progressive as Paul was compared to my society. And so if Paul is offering more rights, more freedom, more uh, space for respect in a world, in that space, which was particularly important because women and children were commonly discarded and left in poverty because they had no money, power, or agency, if I live in a world that is removing rights from where people are based off society as opposed to creating a, a more inclusive and empowering space, then what I'm comparing my modern day assessment of society to is not the rigid and static words of Ephesians. It is the redemptive trend based off where Ephesians is creating a more liberated experience than that of what women experience in society. And so it is that redemptive trend that I bring to my society and my viewpoint now not the static words speaking to a people in first century Greco-Roman world. And that felt deeply satisfying to me as I thought about wrestling through this. Yeah, absolutely. I love that because it's it's something that uh, is about a specific issue, but that you can also see what you just described to us applying to lots of different uh, troubling things that we might encounter if we are somebody who uh, is, like you're describing, there, there, there's some weirdness of like reconciling, like I, I, I need to be able to see how the scriptures fit together. Uh, if that energy is driving us, you're showing us a model of like, oh my gosh, there, there are ways for this to fit together. You don't have to feel like it's just broken or, or just toss it out. Um, that's awesome. Wait, quickly, just before we leave you, Kyle, like, I mean, I can, I can sense the freedom, like in what you just said of just like, oh, thank God, because it's like I know that you've talked about this before, be kind of feeling trapped in two worlds as a kid. Like when you when this first unlocked things for you, like how did that affect your relationship with God? Like, did you just like, is it what we were talking about where you just felt free to like, I'm, I'm not like looking over my shoulder or worrying that God is not who I think he is? 
Yeah, it was it was deeply freeing. I think there was a there was a real problematic uh, experience I had with God where it was I really felt the sense of um, there was a cost to things. Like there was a cost to following him. And uh, there's a phrase that still gets bandied around about a lot now. And I used to say this phrase of like, I really wish, I wish that I could accept women as equal to men, but I, you know, I just, I can't. I wish <laughs> that I could believe uh, gay people could experience a life of companionship. Like I wish that could be true, but you know, it's not up to me, you know? And I think there was a real, real uh, thing that happens in my heart when I realize the things I wish for feel more important than what I'm getting from my faith. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so there is a real freedom of saying, oh, wow. They're like, I don't, I can, I can find peace of finding a deep experience of faith and not having to constantly lament in my life of the things that my faith keeps me from finding freedom in. Oh man, that I mean, that is great. Like just just the idea that most of you are like reflecting on your own faith is lamenting that it doesn't bring you more life that you that you wish it could bring you more life, and that just sounds like I don't know that that sounds miserable. So I'm glad that you're not miserable anymore, Kyle. That's great. Um, <laughs> uh, if we can go to Haley, Haley, do you have a, a story like this? We want to hear um, what what is this from your perspective. Yeah, even um, Kyle, as you're talking and thinking about um, this idea that if you are looking at the Bible with a lens of <clears throat> exclusion and hate, this idea of like, oh, I wish I could see this, you're going to be able to justify exclusion and hate. But if you're looking at the Bible with a lens of love and inclusion and humanizing and empowerment, you're going to find that too. Um, and this is why I think that examining the culture behind and in the text has been really it just is a really redemptive process. Um, and as I was thinking of specific stories that have been a part of my unlearning of this idea that there is one right way to interpret scripture and strength of that is wrong. Um, there's this underlying drive and desire to be right. The question of like, okay, so what's the right answer? And I think this solidifies some interpretations of the Bible over others. And one of the first examples of unlearning for me revolves around the story of the woman at the well. So super brief recap of this story. Um, in John 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well, and he goes against gender and cultural expectations and has an extensive conversation with her. He asks her for a drink of water. They end up talking about her life. He offers her living water, and she goes and tells people about her experience with him. And I had always been told that this story revolves around the woman's sinfulness and more specifically around her being promiscuous. And that idea comes from this part of the conversation. Jesus says, go and get your husband. And the woman replies that she doesn't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've actually had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. So that exchange and the fact that she's at this well alone in the middle of the day are put together to say she's a social outcast who has lived a life of unfaithfulness and sin. And this was the only way I had ever heard of interpreting the story. And then in college, I heard a lecture where the professor pointed out that nowhere in the text does it say that this woman is promiscuous. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's in there. And the whole point is Jesus is calling her out on her sin. But the person went on um, and was teaching and saying that this woman could have had five husbands for a bunch of reasons and none of them because of her acting in sin. 
as Kyle was saying, women didn't have the ability to own property and things like that. They couldn't leave a marriage. So this probably meant that her previous husbands died either from disease or old age. And that thing with the man that she's with currently, that's not her, her husband. Um, there might be something going on with the dowry or familial issues that prevents them from marrying. And she could have been at the well alone for reasons unconnected to a social outcast status. Maybe she just slept in that day. And so when Jesus recounts her multiple relationships, he isn't calling her out on, his sin, on her sinfulness. He's actually naming her pain. I can imagine that the loss of five partners in navigating life without a husband in her patriarchal society is pretty painful. And when he names her pain, she recognizes him as a prophet and maybe even the Messiah and others come to follow Jesus because of her. And even though this is a pretty specific example, the number of times I've heard the story used in sermons and classes and books to say, hey, even the sinful sleeping around woman talks with Jesus and he sees her in sin and loves her anyways. But she likely wasn't this promiscuous person. And the point of the story isn't sin. And that's been the biggest thing for me. It's that Jesus sees the extent of the painfulness of her life and meets her in that pain. The judgy tone that we read into the story says a lot more about our own purity culture and the tearing down of women than it does about the nature of God. And wrestling with this story has helped me in navigating a Christian culture that seems like it is obsessed with talking about sin. But if we decenter sin in the story, we decenter the idea that following Jesus revolves around our own sinfulness and having to make up for that. We can embrace that following Jesus is actually rooted in God being with us, even in the pain and harsh realities of the world. Following Jesus is not about sin management, which I had internalized for a long time. It's about the promise of presence and the transformation that is often formed in places of pain. So this whole process of wrestling and coming to a new realization about Jesus that's far more life-giving was a really important step for me in the way that I interact with scripture. Haley, I think the thing that I'm, that's standing out to me the most in that is that that I mean, that was incredible and beautiful, the way that you helped uh, help me to see our tone that we read into that from our culture, sort of similar to what Kyle was talking about, about how we, we read ourselves into these passages. Um, that was beautiful. But also, like, that is not a passage that is, like, number one on the problematic list. And so, like, what you're just basically suggesting is, like, wait, it could be everything. It could be every Bible passage any of us have ever encountered. I mean... Talk to me about why that, because there's some risks involved with that, right? Like that's that's a lot of being destabilized. That's feeling like, oh, okay, things might've been ordered before, but now they're very disordered. Talk to me about why that is more attractive and wonderful for you and your faith than, than, than believing in this other one that may have more, it may have order going for it, but it obviously f fell just prey to all of these, these the, the worst examples of patriarchy played over and over and over again. In particular, just you as a woman, like how, how, how is that, how is that so much more freeing, even though there's risks involved in that? Yeah. I mean, I think that the thing with this story that I've always been like, I don't know how that sits with me is this underlying shaming aspect. Um, so for me, when you start to wrestle with text and realize like, wow, 
there's so much more that I can do than just accept this at face value and accept the interpretation handed. It is a scary thing because it, it frees up a lot of room to wrestle in the text. Um, it is, I think destabilizing is a really good word there. But for me, honestly, the most comfortable answer has become, I don't know. <laughs> but there, that's, that has been the most freeing thing to say this, I've been trapped in this idea of right or wrong. Um, and when you get out of that and it becomes, how is this good news? That's what drives me, I think, to really get into stories, to really see the potential of redemption within the text, even when it would be so much easier to just like scrap it all. Like why even bother? This idea that there's the ability to say, this is liberating and this is beautiful and this is good news for all people, especially those that are suffering. That's awesome. There was one thing you said, Haley, that I just, I feel like it, it, it captures it so well. We, we often talk about uh, the imagery of God as a doctor, uh, that the things that he asks us to do are, are less like a boss giving us our job description, but more like a doctor giving us a prescription for health. And you were talking about a, few, a lot of my faith for a long time was sin management. That's a great way to phrase it. And I was like, just thinking about the equivalent of like when somebody has uh, some kind of health issue of the difference between treating that and pain management. Like there's the, there's a sense of like, we can't actually treat the underlying issue. So we're just gonna, man we're gonna do pain management. Um, we're gonna give, you know, pain relief meds opposed to being able to say, we're gonna actually address the underlying things. And to me, that speaks really to how sin has, the, my viewpoint of sin has shifted so much. It's not just about mitigating the end effects of sin. It's about addressing the underlying issues for me that lead to selfishness and pride and sacrificing other people's care and dignity to myself and deceit, all these things that are under the umbrella of sin. But it's no longer those things I'm focusing about. It's the it's the human uh, brokenness that I feel like God is trying to treat underneath. And I, I think the way you phrase that story and flip it around, like, what do we need more? Is a God that actually resonates and meets us in our brokenness, opposed to one that calls out our sin and then like tells us how we can feel okay about it. Yeah, and I I think this idea of the underlying shame to um, Brené Brown talks about how shame is never an effective motivator. Um, mm -hmm. So it's never gonna lead to transformative change in our lives. Um, if our viewpoint of coming to scripture is like, I need to make up for this shame and brokenness that I'm feeling, um, that that's never gonna be a fruitful starting place. Um, and I don't think that any of that is what God intends for us either, for us to like start with shame and go from there. And that's why this idea of sin management versus like actual walking with Jesus um, it helps eliminate that shame because I think we see over and over again, like in the story with the woman at the well, that Jesus is frequently empowering and humanizing people. He's not shaming them. And that has been really, really transformative for me. I, I think that's a really great, um, something that we can take and apply in lots of different situations is uh, this, this quote that you just brought up from um, Dr. Brene Brown, uh, shame is never a helpful motivator. Um, that if if we're go a lot of what we're going to be talking about in um, this series is removing some real foundational stones that we've maybe built on top of. Not to you know because 
we just want you know structures to crumble <laughs> um but because if uh, a foundational stone has been yeah god is probably part loving but also there's got to be that part of him that is shaming or there's got to be that part of him that is punishing um we're what we're suggesting is that stone has got to go and a more helpful stone to put down there is uh what we learned from dr brown of the, the uh, shame is never a helpful motivator if we are following a god that is supposedly the motivator in chief the greatest most kind most loving motivator there ever has been and ever will be shame is not going to be in the tool belt there and we just we, that is what needs to be on the foundational level we need to keep that in mind so i really appreciate that uh, one example of this for me uh, that I can think of is uh, it's a little bit uh, getting back to this idea that I brought up last week in our Easter message of um, why did Jesus die um, it, ever ever since I've become a person of faith who was like interested in this this guy Jesus and then getting to this point that I mentioned last week where it kind of feels like a little bit the way most American religion talks about Jesus's death on the cross is it sort of feels like it's doing the opposite of what the rest of his life was about his re the rest of his life was kind and 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 full of you know like uh if we're taking readings like Haley just walked us through in terms of how he treated people they're full of giving dignity to people they're full of acknowledging people in their pain it is it is incredibly emotionally intelligent and present and then but then the way we often talk about the cross is that yes but actually because god is really angry because there's sin in the world and somebody's got to feel the punishment from that and i guess it's going to be jesus because it's not gonna be all of you so uh, that always struck me as as wrong I, i've i've been from very early on in my like I, I think i'm a person of faith i think i'm a person who believes in god and i'm praying to that god and jesus feels really connected to that very early on i was trying to figure out how do i how do i put those things together because the way that it's often talked about they don't fit together they feel like they're accomplishing opposite things i want to see a, a consistent thread here and um somebody who really helped me was learning the teachings of uh if you can imagine that this um this sort of person exists uh is father james allison who is an out gay catholic priest and theologian uh, James Allison is is wonderful and brilliant, and I could not recommend uh, James Allison enough. If you're look, if you want to look up something that like James Allison interviewed or or something that he wrote, it's Allison uh, with one L. Um, I'll just throw that out there. Uh, but this uh, uh, Father Allison is incredible, and he paints this really brilliant to me uh, picture of God that we talked about uh, last week, which is that. Uh, Jesus died not because human, not because God is demanding blood, but because human beings are demanding blood. We are the ones who have that violent tendency, who are demanding punishment, and then project that on to God. And that just, ah, it just feels so important to me, finding that uh, that that consistent understanding of like, oh yeah, now I can see the cross and not feel like I want to hide from it, or not feel like. I want to tell other people in my life about Jesus, except for that cross part, because that's the part where I have to give them the fine print. And I don't know if I want to talk about that. No, like the, the cross is like the culmination of what Jesus was all about. And uh, it, it allows us to see like all of the scriptures that uh, are uh, talked about in the New Testament uh, that are like Jesus died for our sins, uh, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was a ransom for all. We can understand all of those things in, a, in, in just sort of like the inverse way. It's not that like God is the one who's like holding a gun to somebody and is requiring a ransom. We are doing that. That's what humanity does. And so we don't have to see God as violent. We don't have to see God as, as bloodthirsty, as demanding punishment. We can still see God as in the same character as Jesus. That was so 
so helpful to me also because it doesn't like it doesn't paint this picture of i think something we'll talk about further in this series of like the white liberal fluffy god jesus you know it's like oh i just i feel offended by the idea of hell and so i need to explain that away but really i'm just living in my white middle class bubble and i'm afraid because i want to feel okay when i go to sleep at the end of the night the problem with that god is that it can't handle the fact that there's injustice in this world there is there are people who are marginalized who are on the bottom of society and there are people who are on top and that power dynamic is not often talked about because we until the summer of 2020 we refuse to talk about race in polite conversation and so this this idea that we can we can we can see what happened with jesus on the cross this way allows me to fully acknowledge that like God is not responsible for the violence. The violence is on us. And, and, and so I can have that loving God. I can have that God that I totally trust, but also it is, it is not in any way removing the accountability we need in a world that has real injustice. Like it is in no way like turning a blind eye to the fact that like real serious hurts happen in our lives. And it's, and, and they're not just like, Oh, everything will be forgiven. We have to be accountable for those things. And, and, I, and this is why this feels so brilliant to me is that we can have both of those things at once seeing the cross this way. So that's just a little bit behind even what I was talking about last week. Another one of those examples, when I learned that, and, and also I just like, it, there's something about me that like leaps for joy when it's an unexpected person, an out gay Catholic priest and theologian, like who speaks out against LGBTQ uh, abuse within the Catholic church from within. And I just think like even that of like, let's learn from from uh, people who are not just white, middle class, straight, cisgender people, you know, like all of that feels also tied to this idea of like, yes, there are satisfying answers out there. Maybe they're just coming from different perspectives than I thought there were. You know, I, all of this just makes me think about, you know, we've been, as uh, the staff, we've been talking a little bit about the most recent um, Gallup polls that found for the first time in history, uh, less than half uh, Americans are part of a religious or part of a church, a mosque or a synagogue, that the majority of Americans are unaffiliated with a religious uh, institution. And, um, there was, I believe it was in the Atlantic, had a whole assessment on why this is the case talking to people that have left church. And in the way they described it is it, it's an allergy to, they have an allergic reaction to what mainstream Christianity is depicted at through the lens of right-wing media, through the lens of uh, Christian leaders, through the way that uh, white nationalism has found such life uh, in the midst of the American church. And so when I ask, why do I ask these questions? There's every once in a while, I kind of want to, you know, from the matrix, there's that point where the guy chooses to go back into the matrix because he misses the, the flavor of a steak. Every once in a while, I'm like, I just want to go back into the old version of things because I know, I don't think that that is true, but sometimes it'd be more comfortable to speak to Haley's point to feel like, yes, I can tell you these are the right answers. Uh, there's some, but then when I realized the implication of it isn't just it's the, it's the toxic nature of this for so many other people too. And the reason I wrestle with these three things is to find, to find life in my own faith, but to also realize that there has to be places and communities that say, yes, we want to follow Jesus and are deeply committed to that, but 
we are willing to ask questions and wrestle through things that the mainstream experience of faith in our country has decided that they are not going to do anymore. And that we're, we're not going to just accept that or move away from it. We're going to sit in it and still look to the Bible, look to Jesus and stick in this game and not just throw it all out and say, well, you know what, we're going to be like the 53% of Americans that say, that's why I just don't even want to be involved in that. Yeah. Haley, any closing comments here as we move toward a, a finish? Well, this is why I think that the this allergic reaction that Kyle's talking about makes so much sense. Because if you have the cross as a violent story of God abusing power in the form of punishment, that should not sit well with us. Abuse of power in any form, like that should be something that we are calling out and dismantling that should make us uncomfortable. So it makes total sense to me that people look at that, look at the cross and are uncomfortable with Christianity just in general. And so I think this is why Vince, um, your point of understanding that the character of God and what happens in the cross are not antithetical, like that there's a way to reconcile that and see this always all loving God, why that is so important and that it has really um, just strong implications for how we are. It's, it goes beyond just an individual personal experience. Like it affects our experience in community um, and our experience just like in society as a whole. Well, there are obviously so many more directions we can go. Oh, Kyle, you were going to say something. Forgive me. Well, no, I was just going to say like Haley's totally right. When just the logical step of I believe God wants to punish me for my broken sin. He has come to terms with me and is giving me a get out of jail free card because he killed Jesus. If I am in and have accepted Jesus as my savior. So what does that mean about all of the other people in the world around me that are not in with me? Because it's not just this 47% going to church because, you know, some Baptists don't think Catholics are going to heaven. Some Catholics don't think uh, Methodists are going to heaven. Episcopalians are judging Unitarians. It's all over the place. <laughs> Your in-group of people who have actually been purchased for grace, what does that mean in terms of the way that we relate and think? And to think about the violent implications of our responsibility towards everybody else. To me, there's no, it's not a shock why violent white nationalist uh, tendencies have found life in a church that probably didn't mean it to be that way, but the underlying implications of it, the logical follow through of a violent God who's only actually come to terms with a very few of us could be maybe okay for us to think about how we protect us against the other. Well, I certainly think we are set up for the first question uh, from, again, the awesome, awesome comments that we got last week uh, on Easter. Next week, we're going to be uh, having three uh, unique responses to this question of how do we reconcile the portrayal of God in the Old Testament, which tends to be more violent, tends to be more unsettling to modern readers like us with the portrayal of God in the New Testament, which tends to be more in line with what we're talking about here. What do we do with that? What do we make of that? We're gonna have three unique responses to that next week. And uh, and then as we go forward, we're gonna be addressing the other questions. We hope that today's grab bag of like, hey, here are some examples of what we're talking about 
we hope that this wasn't too destabilizing if uh if if it was uh for some of us we hope rather it was an invitation into freedom we do really think that what foundational stones we have laid out and we're building on top of that's gonna matter because our interest is not that we're you know perfectly happy today given what we know our interest is that we have a faith that's alive 40 years from now, 60 years from now, uh, on ongoing. And, uh, and so the, the way that we do that is by creating a space where we can ask these hard questions. I'm really looking forward to uh, the rest of this series. Uh, we hope that you are too. Uh, if I can put Haley on the spot, Haley, would you, would you pray for us as we close up? Yeah, let's pray. Redeeming God, um, I thank you just for the gift of grace that our experience of you gets to be rooted in love above all else. That shame and making up for sin does not have to be our motivator in interacting with you, but that you compel us to live lives that are pursuing justice and that are communicating this love to those around us. God, I just, um, I ask for rest, even in the wrestling. I ask for um, just the, the discomfort that comes with question asking and starting to uncover things that maybe have just been the given in our own experiences and the experiences of our communities, God, um, that you would just sustain us as we uncover and as we pursue truth and lean into that together. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for this community. Uh, we just, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.